Welcome to Homegrown History with Limestone County Archivist Rebecca Davis and longtime Athens, Alabama native Richard Martin. Each episode, Richard and Rebecca bring to life some of the famous and infamous stories etched in Limestone County's rich history. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Homegrown History, your Limestone County History podcast. I'm Rebecca Davis, archivist at the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. I'm here with my co-host. I'm Richard Martin, the oldest one here. That's right. And if you haven't already, we encourage you to listen to part one of this episode in which Richard and I are having a discussion with our very special guests, Chris Paysinger and Peggy Towns, about the history of the Civil War in Athens, Alabama, in Limestone County, Alabama. And uh, there's just so much to talk about. We just had to make it two episodes. And so just to recap, uh, Chris and Peggy both have written books about the history of the Civil War here in North Alabama, and particularly in Limestone County. Chris is a teacher. Peggy is a historian and a little bit of everything. You wear a lot of hats, don't you, Peggy? Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) But we're grateful that you all could join us again to continue our discussion of the Civil War in Athens and Limestone County. And when we left off, we were talking about how Athens was under military occupation. It was uh, between 1862 and 1864. In that time, the Emancipation Proclamation was passed and... um, The U.S. colored troops were building up garrisons and blockades at uh, Fort Henderson, or the Athens Fort, and then also at Sulphur Creek Trestle. And um, meanwhile, the war was still raging, wasn't it? Absolutely. And, you know, um, there's a a really good book on unionism, and it's uh, by Margaret Story. It's about North Alabama. Mm -hmm. But she makes a contention, to piggyback off what you just said, Rebecca, that the towns that were garrisoned, by Union troops were far safer because there was that power structure. And as you got further away from that, basically life was very difficult because Mm -hmm. both armies, both raiding parties, both conscription groups were coming through, taking Mm -hmm. your bacon, taking your pigs, upending your society. And so Athens was probably a very stable society considering out in the county was probably not. Right, and I'm glad you brought that up because one of the books that we have at the archives, it's titled Athens, Alabama, 1861 to 1865, but we always just refer to it as the Southern Claims book because it is a collection of the barred and disallowed Southern Claims, or, you know, claims that were submitted to the Southern Claims Commission in which people testified Mm -hmm. about what was taken from them during the war. These were the ones that were barred and disallowed, not really so much because it didn't happen to them, but because they were deemed to be Confederate sympathizers. And if you want to just read in people's own words what they said, it's it's the transcription of their testimony. And Yeah, I mean, people were, you know, thousands of pounds of bacon and fodder and mules and cows and Mm -hmm. pigs and wagons. I mean, all of this was just taken up by both sides. Both sides. And it left people scrabbling to survive. Well, there was a bunch of bushwhackers around, too, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, they just took advantage of the chaos. Right. Right. But the the Southern Claims applications also only paid, again, people who were in rebellion states. That's right. Of course, that's where the bulk of the fighting happened, but still, it didn't matter if that happened to you up north, did it? You were SOL. Mm -hmm. And it not only paid 
people, but there were several churches mm-hmm. who filed claims as well. Yeah, that's true. Well, a lot of what we have at that Southern Claims book at the archives is mostly individuals mm-hmm. just testifying. And, you know, and it's kind of funny because a lot of them will say, well, yeah, I know that my husband and my sons and my son-in-law all went to war, but we didn't want them to. Well, you know, that they all went to war on the Confederate side, but we didn't want them to, you know. <laughs> and that was sort of their way of, you know, trying to get in there. But, you know, I mean, at the bottom line, I think a lot of people were really just trying to do the best they knew to protect their homes and their families, however, you know, whatever they saw fit. So I want to talk a little bit about what happened then in 1864. And a lot of this information, if you really want to read a lot about um, what was happening in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee, Bob Donovan's book, The Railroad War, is a great book that just talks about the strategies, particularly of Nathan Bedford Forrest and um, how they kind of worked their way through. And their objective was to take over the railroad. And, of course, Forrest was pretty well known for his trick moves, which we can talk about the two. But do you want want to talk about what happened in September 1864? So in September 23, Mm -hmm. Nathan Bedford Forrest rides into Alabama with a vengeance. And Mm -hmm. uh, while at the fort, Colonel Campbell actually hears that he's coming, and he sends people to Decatur or Tanner area to stop him. Some are on horseback, and then others, uh, Campbell and some of the black troops, are actually on the train. And so then uh, they have this skirmish, and Campbell goes back toward Athens. The train runs off the track, Mm. and eventually they, you know, they, of course, get back to Athens. And through the night, uh, Forrest has kind of, encircle Athens, mm-hmm. and uh, they start burning stores. Uh, actually, at one point, they took over the railroad, mm-hmm. and so, some men came in, some federal troops came in and ran them ahead back yep. off. Yeah, that's so right. through the night, they burned the commissary stores, and this is how they got the 10-day supply of food uh, uh-huh. inside the fort is that Campbell and others had the men to go in and take food from the commissary stores and bring it inside the fort. Mm -hmm. And uh, my book is primarily about the African-Americans who were there at Fort Henderson and Suffer Branch Trestle. And I obtained information from their pension records where Mm -hmm. they tell the stories of what actually happened. Oh, that's great. Uh, That's what my book is about. Yeah. Uh, Did we have a famous soldier there, an African-American soldier? You want to tell that story about the one that was there in uh, Fort Henderson? No, you tell it. No, no. (laughs) Well, fine, I'll tell it. Okay. Well, he wasn't famous at the time. No. So so one of the soldiers that was there at Fort Henderson was a man named Joseph Betts. And um, in August of 1864, he decided to make his way over from Gurley in Madison County and uh, enlist there at Fort Henderson and just in time for Forrest and his men to come through. And he fought, was taken captive. And um, as many of the men were, we'll talk about this, this, the battle there at Fort Henderson, but many of them were taken captive and marched out to Waterloo and then taken on trains down to um, work in the docks on the shipyards in Mobile as prisoners of war. But he somehow went missing in the process of all this and did not show up back in Gurley in the census 
until 1865, 1870. Well, he had kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, and so on. And one of his descendants is very well known today <laughs> because she married um, she married Harry, Harry. the prince. <laughs> Meghan Markle is his great 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 granddaughter. And Richard has tried and tried to get her to come and and we visit Limestone County. You have some you have some British connections, don't yeah, you? Well, yeah. <laughs> maybe one of these days. Maybe now that they have. Uh, Left Buckingham Palace. Maybe the, we'll put the word out right now, Megan. If you're listening, come on and step no, in your great you great granddaddy's spots. You tell your husband we'll fix him ribs and serve his beer. If you will fix up some of your fried chicken, then he definitely needs to come because Richard makes some of the best fried chicken I ever put anyway, in my mouth. But anyways, that was one of the soldiers that fought there that ended up having a. a I told y'all everything in Limestone County connects to everything in the world in some way, shape, or form. It's just true. And Rebecca, I would be remiss if I did not mention that the 104th is the first of only two Alabama USCT regiments mm-hmm. organized in the entire state of Alabama. Mm-hmm. And where they enlisted in Decatur, they were garrisoned at Coleman Hill at That's the right. fort in Athens. That's right. So, because a lot of the, the 110th and 11th were enlisted up in Pulaski. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the 104th and 106th that were also there, right, were enlisted in Decatur. The 106. Mm-hmm. But there's that definite connection mm-hmm. between these surrounding counties and um, kind of they all came together here in Athens. Well, so Forrest and his troops come through from the West, and I'll have to tell, unless one of y'all want to tell about the trick move. I do think it's pretty great. (laughs) So, you know, Forrest was known as the Wizard of the Saddle, and partly because he was always doing some trick move. Even before he came to Athens, the Union troops were assuming he must be down in southern Mississippi because he had just had some false information fed into the newspapers about how he was down there. Meanwhile, he was on a train headed north to North Alabama. And so once he came to Athens, the Confederate troops were pretty well outnumbered. I mean, like like you were talking about earlier, Chris, that once the Union especially bolstered their numbers with the U.S. colored troops, they really outnumbered a lot of these Confederates. I mean, the, this, this was 1864. It was towards the end of the war. A lot of men had died. And you have to remember... Fort Pillow was actually in the forefront of their minds as well. Exactly. And so um, Forrest had, you know, he was cavalry, cavalry commander. And so he had his guys ride by on their horses and then go out of sight, jump down off the horses, change their coats, and then march by and then go out of sight and then jump back up on the horses and ride by again. And so Campbell, the colonel there at the fort, he just took one look at this just Men just kept on coming by and kept on coming by. He thought, we will never be able to take this massive army that's coming after us. And so there was a skirmish there, but he surrendered pretty quickly mm-hmm. because he thought he was outnumbered just because of this little trick move that um Forrest put on him. Mm-hmm. But there were several men who were... um Do you remember about the numbers of about how many men were stationed at the Athens Fort? Quite a few hundred, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah. That's something we need to have in writing some, is just as far as casualties and um, prisoners. Another soldier who fought there that whose story is just fascinating to me is John 
Jackson Dawson, mm-hmm. and he was a former slave up in the Elkmont area. He served there at Fort Henderson, and he was actually shot. He had a money ball in his hip and was marched, just like the rest of them, all the way over to Waterloo, which is a good 50 miles um, to the west, and then, you know, put on the train there and was shipped down south to the shipyards. He was so hungry that he was riding in cattle cars, and he and the other soldiers would pick corn Mm -hmm. out of the cow piles that were there in the bottom of the car just so they wouldn't starve to death. And, you know, he survived all that, survived the imprisoner of war, made his way back to Alabama after the war was over, and he raised a family. He had a daughter of his old age, named her Sammy. His name was Jackson. He took the name Dawson. He took the name Dawson because he had had some Dawson family that he admired. And so Sammy Dawson grew up. She went to Trinity School, which was established there for the African-American students after the war. She attended there, was educated there, came back to teach there and taught many generations. She was a very much admired teacher there. And to me, that story, those people just epitomize the um, that slave to soldier to student to teacher track that so many people made. But to have that direct family story, you know. But Rebecca, even before that, he said that his owner... Mm-hmm. told him the, the Union soldiers had taken a horse, and his owner told him that if he could get the horse back, he could have the horse. Oh, wow. <laughs> and he got the horse back. I didn't know so that. So it's in my book. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, and then he said he went to visit his wife, and his owner at that time told him that he needed to join the Union Army, and mm-hmm. that's when he enlisted really? on Christmas. But he also was one of the people who helped to build yeah. uh, Suffolk Branch, the Trestle. That's right. And um, there's another story that I had noted about David Reedus. Um, the Reedus family, they lived right there close to Suffolk Creek Trestle. And two sons um, both enlisted to fight in the Confederate Army and both died before their 18th birthday, not from injuries, but from dysentery or, you know, that type camp illness. And um, David was one of their former enslaved people. And he left and, you know, battled at Fort Henderson, was captured, marched toward Florence. Well, about seven miles out of Athens, he escaped. And he ran, made his way all the way back up to the Reedus Plantation And they took him in. He was injured. They nursed him back to health. And then he went on back down and joined back up with his troops. And this is all according to the Southern Claims Commission. Mm -hmm. Another observation is that at the time that many of the soldiers were taken prisoners, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on who you were or who your owner was, Mm -hmm. they would send you back to that plantation. Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, and the Reedus, I've always thought, was kind of a sad story because... Here they lost both of their sons. They were so close to Sulphur Creek Trestle that their plantation was just absolutely raided 
for anything and everything that could be used, you know, food, mules, cows, everything. And, um, you know, they were one of those. And, of course, Redis to this day is a name that there are a lot of African-American families in this town that are named Redis. And it's kind of like Malone. There are so many Malones, but because there were large landowners and slave owners named Malone. And so it does go back to that to this day. Well, so once Forrest and them took Athens, then they headed north. Do y'all want to talk a little bit about then what happened there at Sulphur Creek Trestle? Uh, The Battle of Sulphur Trestle was actually, by Alabama standards, a very large battle. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got the Battle of Selma, Mobile Bay that are both large battles, but uh, in the reality of the Civil War, Alabama was just a lot of small battles and skirmishes, Mm -hmm. but Sulphur Trestle probably involved around 5,000 men uh, at the time of the battle. It was a battle where Forrest basically got control of the high ground around the trestle. If you stand on the trestle today, you're encircled by about four large mountains. If you mm-hmm. could really clear cut the trees and see them mm-hmm. like they would have been at the time. And Forrest artillery just basically blew the little fort off the hill. They really right. never stood a chance. Right. Well, they were ended. in a spot that they were able to watch the, the trestle, yeah. but their position being a little bit lower than the surrounding hills made them kind of sitting ducks. And it was just a massacre from what I understand. You know, you had forest troops firing down in the, the fort was blazing up. People were running for cover and the little, you know, shelters there and that would then get blown away. And, uh, oh, about 200 men died. Yeah, it's actually done as the bloodiest war in Alabama during the Civil War. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, University of North Alabama, their public history department, has done a really, really excellent write-up about that that's available. Um, it's online. We could probably put a link to it in the show notes. But they've done a lot of research about, you know, using field reports and what all happened there. And one thing that hit me was that one of Forrest's soldiers later recalled, I saw no more horrid spectacle during the war than the one in which the interior of that fort presented. If a cyclone had struck the place, the damage could hardly have been worse. And so, you know, we have people asking um, at the archives sometimes, where are the Union soldiers buried? Because they know there were lots of Union soldiers who were killed. Where are their graves? Well, they're probably in a mass grave up there. Um, there or the F- any grave, just bodies yeah. laying around. Right, what was left of them, you know, because it was just horrid. Well, and one interesting note there about that, that battle there at Sulphur Creek Trestle, which was the day after the Battle of Athens there in September 1864, um, you had Colonel Lathrop, William Hawkins Lathrop, who was the commander of the fort there at Sulphur Trestle, and he just absolutely refused to surrender, and I mean died not too long after that, not after his refusal to you surrender. You know, his dying words were, don't yep, surrender. That's exactly right. That's his what very he told last words were, do not surrender the fort. And then he was shot and killed. Mm-hmm. And the command passed to Major Eli Lilly. Mm-hmm. And if that name sounds familiar to you, it's it probably is. because he founded Eli Lilly and Company, a pharmaceutical company that is still in business to this day. One of the few that I guess has not tried their hand at making a COVID vaccine. <laughs> but Eli Lilly, he was the one in command right there at Suffer Creek Trestle. And so... So many men were killed. The fort was burned out. And then the whole trestle was burned out, too. Correct. And um, I do think it's interesting how 
you could tell whenever the troops had come through and had burned out, you know, besides the fact that the train was gone, the tracks were gone. But one of the things that people used to do was burn the cross ties and everything, get it so hot that they could pull up the rails and wrap them around trees. And I cannot even imagine what it must have looked like at that time to come through and see the bare <laughs> railroad and railroad what am I trying to say? The rails wrapped around trees. But, you know, that was, it was kind of a way of not only making sure that it was burnt out, but that you also left a message that you ain't going to be rebuilding with this rail anyways. And one of the people in my book talked about how the Confederates made them burn the trestle before they went on to Cherokee to board the train. Yeah. And it was not rebuilt until after the war. And so when you think about it, as we talked about in the first part of this episode, just the major supply pipeline that was cut off from this. And of course, I mean, it was kind of a last gasp because you've got then Forrest and them head on up into Tennessee and then they're trounced to the Battle of Franklin. You know, it was, it was sort of the beginning of the end of the war, but then you had just a hot mess in Athens and Limestone County. I mean, well, for one thing, the courthouse was burnt out. When I think about the fact that we actually do have records going back to 1818 at the Limestone County Archives, I know we've got somebody to thank for that. I don't know who. But the courthouse was, it was gutted in 1864. There was a fire. I don't think there was ever any conclusive whether it was set on purpose or if it was maybe a, you know, a fireplace that got out of control. But it did gut the courthouse and then it had to be rebuilt and it wasn't completed until 1867. But one thing, and I have never found any record to verify this urban legend, but one thing that I've always heard is that when folks here knew that war was coming to their door, that they gathered up the record books and sent them off on trains to hide out in caves or somewhere. Hmm. Now, whether or not that's true, I don't know. But all I know is that for whatever reason, those records weren't burnt, which is real. It's it's a real blessing because what? so many counties across, especially the South, oh, yeah. have nothing because of courthouse burnouts. One thing that I've learned from Richard historically is never let the truth get in the way of a good story. <laughs> that's his mantra. <laughs> that's true. That's yeah. true. It does make a great story to imagine some of these folks pulling up all the books and throwing them on a train and sending them off to a cave to hang out until the war was over. The the Civil War in Athens and Limestone County, of course, you know, there is that watershed, I think, event with the Battle of Athens and the Battle of Sulphur Trestle in September of 64. Mm -hmm. And really what it does is it destabilized the area even more fully than it had been previously. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Union Army obviously moves back in, takes control of the railroad, But I think, for the most part, the populace and the slaves that remained, uh, they knew the war was over at that point. I mean, you've got William Sherman rampaging through Georgia. In November, you've got the Battle of Franklin. December, Mm -hmm. the Battle of Nashville. So that immediacy of the war coming to an end, I think, if you begin to read some of the records, uh, some of the personal recollections, they knew the war was ending. I'd be remiss not to point out that the Donald family papers are fantastic to be able to recount, you know, a prominent family who struggled significantly during the war in a lot of ways. Uh, Mary Fielding's book is fantastic. Maybe the best thing, in my opinion, of Athens in the Civil War to see her 
see the war through her eyes exactly. as a young, a fairly young girl in Athens, mm-hmm. Limestone County, who was in Athens and then outside of Athens at the family home. Mm-hmm. And so you're able to see kind of this really unstable situation. One of my favorite moments to go back to colored troops is when Mary Fielding encountered her first armed slave, mm-hmm. former slave at that point, mm-hmm. uh, and her reaction to that, that he told her what to do. Yeah. She couldn't pass on the sidewalk. And, you know, yeah. just that upending of the power structure to right. me is so yeah. phenomenally interesting. Yeah. And because, you know, oftentimes when we think about, like uh, Richard talked about shooting at the darn Yankees up in here with his BB guns when yeah. he was playing as a kid. But really, you know, what you think of, for the most part, I mean, there were soldiers from Indiana and Ohio and others here, but a lot of these were local men Mm -hmm. who were in their own backyards Mm -hmm. fighting for their freedom. Mm -hmm. And it kind of flips the script, doesn't it, Peggy? Absolutely, because uh, with my ancestor, George Allen, after the war, he was injured in Mobile Mm -hmm. after the Union Army regained Mobile. Uh, He was injured when Hmm. an ammunition house blew up, blinded him. And when he came back, he was uh, discharged February 6, 1866. And when he came back, he eventually received a pension of $17 a month. Can you believe that? That's a lot of money. He was living off the hog. He purchased (laughs) some of the land that he was enslaved on. Now that's something. It's phenomenal. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, we have all of these amazing stories about, and he's not the only one. Several people purchased land that they were enslaved mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. So that's just phenomenal in and of itself. And Rebecca, I have Mobile Appetizer Circular mm-hmm. that has approximately 500 and something names on it asking where the Confederate Army was asking the slave, the enslaved, now soldiers, I call them slaves turned soldiers, to come and get compensated for the work. Because keep in mind, the Confederate Army did not consider these soldiers, these United States colored troops, as soldiers. They still looked at them as chattel. Yes. Well, and that is, just that right there is just such, maybe you can speak to the significance of that when you start talking about studying um, African-American family history and genealogy, because I know that's just such a challenge, and to be able to have something like that that lists those names, Mm -hmm. what was it like for you to see? Oh, my ancestor. Yeah. Of course, you know, first I had already gotten the pension record. Sure. And the pension records, anybody who has ancestors who have served in the Civil War, they need to get the pension record if they apply for a pension. It it might have uh, names of former owners. There are affidavits in there of slaves and white people who knew them as good slaves or that kind of thing. So it's all kinds of information, plus it's information about how their injury incurred. Oh, that's just a coup. Were you praising Jesus? I'm always excited whenever (laughs) somebody sits at the archives and starts praising Jesus. I'm like, yes, they found their person. With him, and then not only him, because I have other soldiers. So I was at the National Archives when I found Julius, or when I went through Julius Sherrod's pension record. He actually had three volumes of records. So in his record was also 
a statement from Dr. Sturz, who was the first black doctor in Decatur, and he was a pension doctor as well, pension oh, surgeon. Wow. So in there on his letterhead, and I said, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> but then not only that, there was a congressional inquiry in there. That was my job for too many years. Uh-huh. So I was so, everybody looked at me. I could, <laughs> my excitement exploded all over the place. Well, I can tell you, I'm happy for patrons when they find their people. I, good for you. Yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, um, so, Richard, I know you have worked on your family history. Do you have some stories that you remember of any of your family that either fought during the war or were back home during the war? I was very fortunate that my great-grandfather, James Hunter Chandler, and his bunkmate, they kept a diary of oh. the whole war. Oh, really? Oh, wow. And it has been published, and I found it. And I have taken that and put it into my family history from day one, the day they joined over in Gravely Springs to he surrendered here down in Alabama. So, yes, I have. Mm. What just is there anything that stands out about his service that you remember? Well, you know, they talk about shooting, you know, mm-hmm. how many did you shoot? I don't know. I shot quite a few. That's people's lives mm-hmm. are gone. And they talk mostly about the Battle of Franklin and Nashville and what all, how bad that was. And when it was over, they didn't know where anybody was. And so they just started getting on a horse and coming home to Athens. Mm-hmm. And wow. it tells all of this. So That's cool. Wonderful. Which, by the way, I've been working with Richard to edit that family history book. And so once it's finished, we'll have copies of that at the archives. We also have Chris's book and Peggy's book at the archives. Um, to Lockaber Namer is another great book that has parts of Mary Fielding's diary and some other diaries, and it's Southerner's Views of the Civil War. That was published by Axford. We have copies of that there at the archives. And a few years ago, I worked with our dear friend, the late Jerry Barksdale, on his family history novel based on family history records, uh, Revolutionaries and Rebels. And um, the story of his ancestor, James Greer Barksdale, is one that always gets me because, you know, he was just a school teacher and a farmer. He was not interested in being a soldier. But like so many of the men here that after the Union troops ransacked Athens, it was sort of, it became like, like duty driven. You know, they felt duty driven to protect and sign up. So he enlisted in 1863 and he fought at the battles of Chickamauga and Missionary Ridge. That's where he was injured and captured, and he was sent off prisoner of war. And he was shipped to Rock Island Prison, which, if you know anything about it, it was basically a very, very cold hell on earth. And more men died, froze to death. Um, Let's see, I've got the numbers here. It's an island in the middle of the Mississippi River in Missouri, and nearly 2,000 of the prisoners sent there died there. They froze to death. They starved to death. They died of smallpox or dysentery. Some of them were even shot by guards just trying to use the bathroom near the latrine line. You know, they got a little too close to the deadline. But... James survived 18 months in prison there at Rock Island, partly because he stayed out of trouble and partly because he just did what it took to survive. He and other prisoners would trap rats or they would barter for dogs just to have some meat to eat to be able to survive. And um, according to family lore, before he left for the war, he was real fond of squirrel dumplings. 
But after he came back, he just <laughs> couldn't ever eat them again. He's like, they're too much like rats with bushy tails <laughs> for me. So he finally, he was able to come back home, and apparently he drank an entire dish pan of coffee his first night home. And uh, he caught up on a few other things, too. They had a little boy about nine months later, so, you know, or a little girl. But anyways, you know, he was just like so many of these men didn't really set out to be a soldier. You know, it just became something that they felt honor-bound to do. And... um Another one that I like is Dadema McWilliams because both of her sons were enlisted. Her husband was too old to enlist in the in Confederate Army, but she was at home, you know, watching the the farm basically. And um, she had the Confederate troops and the Union troops both came through, and there was a lieutenant that was guarding a bridge, and she sort of struck a deal. He was a Yankee lieutenant and Yankee. Union, and uh, she said Yankee in the thing, in her Southern claims. But she struck a deal where she's like, okay, if you will help guard our plantation, then I'll give you a heads up, and I'll hide you if any Confederate troops come through. And she did. They honored each other's deals, and they made it through the war. But now she petitioned to be reimbursed for $846 worth of 15 hogs, a cow, a mule, 800 pounds of bacon. You know she was good in Southern. 110 pounds of corn, you know, over a ton of fodder. And it was disallowed because she was deemed to be a Confederate sympathizer. But, you know, I want you, if you don't mind, to tell the story of Emily Frazier, Peggy, because she's another one of my favorites. You have to consider there's not so many records, but I often just think about the women and what they went through with their sons and their fathers and their husbands gone and children at home and soldiers ransacking through. I just can't even imagine. And you've got stories like Diadema, and then there's Emily. She's just a case all on her own. Emily was this extraordinary, astute businesswoman. Mm -hmm. Uh, She did not work on the plantation, per se. Her owner, or master, as she called him, Mm -hmm. was Lawyer Richardson, and he's buried over in the cemetery. Mm -hmm. She was able to go freely... And, and actually worked for Union soldiers when they encamped here. Mm-hmm. She ironed and took in cooking and that kind of uh, stuff. But she was very astute. At one point, she purchased a milk cow and calf of $5 from the soldiers. And then in turn, sold them milk. Yeah, that's the way to do it. <laughs> Another occasion, she paid a uh, gentleman, Fernando Allen. Uh, at that time, the Confederates were taking wagons. But she paid him to drive a team out of cotton, mm-hmm. uh, and he brought back $100 to her. Mm-hmm. So she's very mm-hmm. astute. Yeah. Uh, the part that I really love, she said that she bought whiskey from the poor whites. <laughs> <laughs> that moonshine. <laughs> I told you. And she came back and sold it to the soldiers, and the captain told her that she didn't stop selling that whiskey. They were going to arrest her. <laughs> <laughs> But she was very, very, very astute. And uh, her southern claim was four hogs, two mules, and a horse. And it was, uh, I think, $526 was her claim that she had filed, and they paid her $40. Oh, wow. Yes. Yes. Wow. What happened to her after the war? Do you know? Uh, She married. And uh, I love her claim because she's like, 
uh, her husband did not have any claim or her children to the claim that she had filed. Go, girl. Yes, but uh, (laughs) she actually died here in Limestone County. Wow, I just love her story. I mean, (laughs) you know, for any person of color and for any woman back then, being able to have that kind of success is is something that's just um, remarkable. The 1870 census showed she was married to Edmund Fraser at that time, so. That's great. Yes. Yes. All all history is local, and we forget about that often. I know in school, uh, being a school teacher, you know, it's so easy to crack open a textbook or look at a course of study, and I talk about the Missouri Compromise or the Mm -hmm. election of 1860 or the Battle of Franklin or whatever the case may be, but what it really does is it washes out those personal stories and, and the immediacy of what the war or other events mm-hmm. would have meant to the people that really experienced it. Exactly. And I've always tried to pull in local history. Um, mm-hmm. And I think kids appreciate it. Uh, when yep. you begin to talk about slavery, it's easy just to say, and there were slaves. But when you begin to say, but in, I taught in Madison County for years, that in 1860, 55% of the population were slaves. Mm-hmm. In Livestock County, 52% of the population at that mm-hmm. time. And it's something that I think students, it doesn't occur to them to think about. And I think to a lot of adults, it doesn't occur to us to think about the past histories here exactly. And and we probably don't do a very good job of drawing in those national events and contextualizing them and putting Emily Frazier Mm -hmm. in the context Mm -hmm. of slavery. Mm -hmm. And, you know, slaves were not just mindless laborers. They were intelligent and they were talented and but otherwise, if you don't know the story of Emily Frazier, it, it washes out slavery. It washes out the experience. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say that her owner just let her go freely. She paid him. Yeah. So she was actually more. She was more valuable. More to valuable yeah. to him by paying him. For sure. Than she would be in the field. Picking or cotton in or the something. House. Yeah. Yes. And her, yes. her brother, if I'm not mistaken, was a blacksmith mm-hmm. and he did the same thing. Right. Well, and I'm really glad you brought that up about localizing history because that's part of the reason why we're doing this podcast right now is I want people to know how these state and national and international events, how they affected life right here in Limestone County and how those stories are still playing out to this day. And another thing that I've done in pre-COVID times, and I hope to get back to it again, is go to the Athens Intermediate School. Every year, I talk to the fourth graders, just an overview of Limestone County history, but I talk to the fifth graders, get them all in, in the, what do they call it, the cafetorium, <laughs> yeah. and um, and go through and tell the story of what we're talking about today, the Civil War in Limestone County, and I tell them where you are sitting right now, this is where Forrest and his troops marched through on their way, because, you know, he's coming down 72, Highway what 72. is now Highway 72, it was already a road back then. And then he was marching back with prisoners of war. And these people are your ancestors. And this happened right here on the soil on which we sit. You know, I mean, my house, I live over on the west side of Athens. And when we started doing more work on Fort Henderson, I realized, oh, I'm living in the battlefield, too, of what was the Fort Henderson, you know, Battle of Athens. And so, just like I talked about, um, I feel like over there at Fort Henderson, it does feel a little bit like hallowed ground. And you talk about being there at Suffer Creek Trestle and just the weight of history can, some, can sometimes overcome you. When you know and understand what happened here and why it helps contribute to the way things are today. And see, and I love your concept of how you're teaching because I feel it's my duty to let people know that blacks 
paid significant contributions, not just to history now, but to every single aspect right. of United States history. And where we look at it as black history or African-American history, it's really our history. That's right. And when we share our history, history, it should be a total, not just a whitewash part of what I want to present. I think we just do a disservice to our children and adults as well, <laughs> when we do not tell the entire truth of our right. history, because it's our story. And it's complicated, and it's <laughs> ugly, it is. and that's okay. That's and fine. you know, I, I, I like to joke that I'm a revisionist historian. It's not so much that I'm trying to revise the record, it's just that some of these records have never come to light. Yeah. And it's the stories that were never told. And that's why I so appreciate the work that you all have done, all three of you. Oh, Let's start patting each other's backs again, <laughs> shall we? But, you know, this, this is probably a good place to wrap it up, just to say that there are so many resources. At the Limestone County Archives, we have a whole section that's just on Civil War, um, just information about the Civil War in Limestone County. It includes these books that we've talked about today that are written by these esteemed colleagues of mine and, uh, and many others as well. And so the information is there for finding. I would encourage anybody, just dig in. Dig in as deep as you want or not. But, you know, don't, it's, it's don't worth just knowing go to the story. Don't just no. go to other places and see their history mm-hmm. because ours is just as good. It is. It yeah. is. Or bad. Or bad. It's all and in there. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And you have to remember, it's not comfortable. And as you said, it's right. not, it's not, it's ugly. Right. But it's still our history and we need to embrace the totality of our history. Yeah. Y'all just giving me chills. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap up. What do y'all think? Y'all got anything else you think we need to add? Go out and find more of it. We're, we're not the experts. You need to go find them. That's right. That's right. Talk to your mom and them. Yep. Go find those family diaries. Okay. Well, y'all, thank you. Thank you as always, everyone. We thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of Homegrown History. You've been listening to Homegrown History, presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library and the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. For more information and to submit questions or suggestions, please visit limestonearchives.com. And to hear other recordings from our Library Voices series, check out our website at alcpl.org. You can also listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.